Hi, welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 21 for Indian Kings. Now, third time's a charm, right, Andrew? That's right, Caleb. This is actually the third time we've recorded this episode. Uh, the first time, we thought it was great, and then we listened to it, and we didn't hit the record button or something. No, it had a horrible echo in it. So then we recorded it again, and we were very happy with it, but then we uh, stopped by Ganan again and talked to the historian there, and he pointed us to a bunch more information, and after we penned through it, we realized we got to record this whole thing. Yep. So here we are again. Also, this was going to be a 15, 20-minute episode. Now it's going to be a full-length episode. So I think the first thing we need to get out of the way, Caleb, is the Iroquois Confederacy, they don't have kings. So why are we talking about four Indian kings this week? Well, because this is being told from a English perspective. And the best way to get people back in London to recognize how important these Indian chiefs are is to call them kings. Because in their head, they think of a king as a, as a monarch that controls huge territories and many people. So I think we need to back up and figure out how the heck these four Indian kings end up in London. So in our last episode, Caleb, we talked about the Great Peace of Montreal in 1701 and how the five nations and 35 other Indian peoples in the French signed a treaty in Montreal. And one of the main points of this document was keeping an emphasis that the five nations would remain neutral between all future Anglo-French conflicts, right? Correct. This takes place in 1701. Uh, guess what happened between France and England in 1701? Uh, I'm going to guess a war. They, France and England, as seems like their entire history, they get involved in another war. We probably have been saying this over and over again, but European wars are convoluted messes, and we're not going to even begin to go into depth. But I'll give you the main bullet points, all right, Caleb? So 1701, King Charles II of Spain dies. He has no heirs. And so that sets off what's called the War of Spanish Succession. The French back the French King Louis XIV's grandson, and the English want pretty much anybody but him because they're worried that possibly Spain and France could unite as one kingdom if this uh, goes to fruition within a generation. And you got to remember, Caleb, what does Spain control at this time? They don't just control Spain. They control most of South America, Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida. They control most of the quote-unquote, new world. Yeah, if you think about the Spanish colonies, they're really not that far from the su the southernmost English colonies in the new world. Not only that, you've got all the European power between France and Spain, and so this could be a huge deal. In 1702, Mary's sister Anne becomes queen fully in her own right, and so Anne kind of inherits this war that they're embroiled in, and in North America, this war is called Queen Anne's War. So that sets up the background. The Iroquois, to their credit, Caleb, when this war starts, they've just, the ink is not even dry on this treaty, and already England and France are in a war, but the Iroquois decide, all right, we're going to stay out of this. That's right. Uh, we mentioned they've had just terrible loss in population with disease and all the wars that have been going on that they've been getting involved in on both sides of the Great Lakes between the Dutch and the English and the French. So they really need to take a neutral stance and try to rebuild their population and try to start playing the French and the English against each other instead of the English and the French playing them against each other. Yep, and so um, things stay pretty good for the first couple years that Iroquois are not getting involved. But not all the Iroquois, just the governments. 
Um, because what was happening is we've mentioned on and off again that Jesuits have been working specifically among the Mohawks, right, Caleb? That's right. And a lot of these Mohawks have come to the Christian faith legitimately. They become, many of them, very passionate Christians. And at some point, we're probably going to have to do an episode on how Catholicism changed the Mohawks. But here's the problem. If you think back to how difficult it was for Protestants and Catholics to get along. Like Andrew said, a lot of these Jesuits were coming down and converting a lot of the Mohawks into Catholics, but at the same time, there were English missionaries coming through and converting them into Protestants. And then Iroquois that didn't want anything to do with either one of them. Yes. So it's starting to create this strife in these villages where you have the people that want, the traditionalists that want to keep their religion, and then you have the Catholic converts and the Protestant converts. So what ends up happening is large portions of the Mohawk population is resettling up near New France so they can be closer to the Jesuit priests. You know, you might not think that's a big deal, but to the Mohawks, we're, we're talking about large numbers. And actually, by this time, maybe up to half of the Mohawks have relocated up north to the New York-Canada border. This is creating a lot of strife between the Mohawks, but it also draws them into the French orbit. And now with this war going on, Queen Anne's War, some of these Mohawk, French Mohawks, are going out on these raids and they're not being neutral. But at the same time, because of this treaty, the French are not allowed to move into Five Nation territory, nor are the English. And so the French want to strike at the English, but they've got the Iroquois in the way. So to strike at the English, they're going to need to go around. And the only place they can really get to is New England. Now, in 1704, the French raid a town called Deerfield, Massachusetts. You ever heard of it, Caleb? Yeah. So they go down. It's a small little English settlement in northwestern Massachusetts. They head out in the winter and pretty much reach everybody by surprise. It's, they call it a massacre. They kill 47 villagers and then they take 112 settlers captive back to Canada. Yeah, Deerfield was basically just a little farming settlement with uh, people looking, new settlers that were looking for land. So there wasn't any fort, there wasn't any soldiers, and they never really had a chance. Yep, to make things worse, um, a lot of these were women, children. They're being taken back in the middle of winter. Some of them are pregnant, and so about 60 of them died, starved to death, or were exposed to the, the elements on the way back. And so many of the Mohawk were participating in this raid, along with other Algonquin and Canadian Indians. Um, a lot of these people ended up getting adopted by Mohawks, and some were, after a couple of years, redeemed and ransomed. But the interesting thing is, Caleb, dozens of the younger children, and especially women, didn't want to go back. That's right, Andrew. And this actually happened a lot throughout the wars with the Native Americans. They, they would kidnap a daughter... And they would go and live there for a year. And then they would have a chance to ransom them back. And they wouldn't want to come back. There were, there were many things that played into this. One, they felt a sense of belonging. They were truly adopted. And another one was freedom. Yeah. At the time, women were still almost subpar citizens in colonial America. They didn't have the right to vote. They, were, they, you know, they didn't work jobs. But when they went and became members of an Indian nation... The women are respected leaders now. Uh, we're going to see stories coming up where women actually become leaders in these clans. Now, if you were a boy, you'd think, okay, well, that's, that's not so much fun either. But Brent Franklin writes, Caleb, uh, many times the young boys are taken captive and they refuse to come back. But he said, what can we offer them? They don't have to work. They can go out and hunt and fish and go off to war. And that's everything every little boy has ever wanted to do. <laughs> so why would they ever want to come back and have to plow with an ox? 
you know, do chores around the house when they could live a life like that. In our previous episode, Caleb, we mentioned that Peter Schuyler was the mayor over at Albany at this time. And he looks what's happened over at Deerfield, Caleb, and he's thinking to himself, well, if the French have struck here, what if they strike Schenectady again? Or what if they strike Albany or one of the towns around here? What are we going to do? The Iroquois aren't doing anything to stop them. I've got to come up with a plan. I've got to think of something. And he comes up with a plan, a brilliant, crazy, convoluted, comical plan. The Mohawk, like we had said, tensions are brewing underneath, and they're not happy with the French coming in, and their missionaries are stealing their people and sending them back up. And so the Mohawks say, all right, we're going to break the treaty with the French. And they call four of the five nations together. They get everybody but the Seneca together for a council, and they say, all right, we will come and we will attack Canada. But we want to make sure that you guys are going to help us. We don't want to be fighting all by ourselves and you hiding over in the bushes. So what's going to happen? And Skyler's like, we're going to get help and we're going to come fight with you. That's right. So they wait for British reinforcements to arrive. But nobody comes. And so the Iroquois said, well, forget you. We're not putting our whole lives out of the line for the French to come after us after this. So Skyler says, all right, all right, all right. What if I can get a leader from all the nations and I could bring them to Europe, to England, and they could see the glorious might of our capital and our glorious English empire and show them how powerful and committed we are. Maybe they would be convinced then, and I can show the queen that the Native Americans are in on this too. You know, I can picture the French governors and the English governors really trying to convince the Native Americans on how powerful their countries are back at home. But you got to remember, these are just pathetic colonies with little wooden forts, and they're telling you, no, you don't understand. We have houses that are, you know, 100 feet tall back home, all made of stone. Sure they are. We have tens of thousands of soldiers and, and ships, so many that you can't even count them. And yet, the Iroquois have seen no help over the last few years. I mean, Schuyler, to his credit, did help them. He helped them with the, the raid into the Mohawk towns, and he did help the Mohawk recapture people. But they haven't seen anything that would show that the British are a mighty power that could take on the French. So on top of just wanting to bring them back uh, to see the might, he, he's still looking at this as kind of uh, in a European way, where he's thinking, I can basically get ambassadors. I can get a representative from each of the five nations, and they can come through. And then when they go back, they can all spread the word. But I'm not sure if he just couldn't find people willing to go due to the fact that in the past, whenever chiefs get on boats with Europeans to go see their country... They might not come back. They almost never come back. Uh, so I'm not sure if he tried to get somebody from each nation and they just weren't willing, or it was just easier to uh, grab any local chief that just so happened to be around the area at the time. And he wanted to find people that looked the part. It's almost like he did a casting call. He's like, oh, well, I don't want to get that person. They look kind of sick and weak. And so he got the, the muscular, tall, uh, calendar model kind of guys. Yeah, three of these... Three of these chiefs were like th six feet tall, which at the time was pretty tall. Well, you say that, but uh, it's quite interesting. Europeans at this time were quite short, but Native Americans were actually, that was their average height, was six foot. No kidding. Yeah, and so Native Americans were actually closer to a height that we have today because Native Americans, you remember, generally were very well nourished. They had a balanced diet of meat and vegetables and fruits, and everybody shared and nobody went hungry. Versus Europeans, or plowing fields and 
if you don't have a good harvest, well, it sucks to be you. Native Americans, they had a bad harvest. Their brothers and sisters from another clan would help them out. And so Native Americans were much bigger build. And you see records from the French, Spanish, and English talking about the height and stature of the Native peoples. But I digress. So who did he find, Caleb? Well, he found three Mohawk chiefs off the start. One of them was named Sagayith Kupitho of the Bear Clan. And he had the title King of the Magwas. What the heck is a Magwa? I was hoping you could tell me. Um, maybe Mohawks? He also had a, uh, a Christian name, which was Peter Brandt. Yeah, and some people speculate uh, it's possible, but not proven, that he could be the grandfather of Mohawk leader Joseph Brandt, who was a huge figure in the Revolutionary War. Uh, who else did we have? The second chief's name was Honiyith Tanoro of the Wolf Clan. And then there was also Tiyihogaro, meaning double life. And he was also from the Wolf Clan. And his Christian name was Heinrich. And then we had a fourth guy, right, Caleb? That's right. And this guy is kind of interesting because at first when you read this, you find out that he's a Mohican. And now, if, Mohicans, aren't they like Algonquin-speaking people that are not even part of the Confederacy? That's right. These, these people lived east and south of the Iroquois. And uh, at, normally they tended to be at war with them. So when I first read this, I just assumed, wow, they really can't find enough Iroquois chiefs to go, so they're just going to grab any good-looking Indian and send him there as a king. His name was Ito Okoam, and he was from the Turtle Clan. Hmm. But there's actually some evidence that he was actually an adopted Mohawk. He was a Mohican that most likely, through warfare, was captured, and he was a strong chief. So he was adopted and worked his way up to becoming a chief in the Mohawk nation. Or he could have married in. And they titled him Emperor of the Six Nations. That's right. Not only was he not even a, a born <laughs> Mohawk. In... But he's, he's now the emperor. He's the, he's the Augustus of, uh, of the great Iroquois Empire. At least that's what the English put his title down as. I wonder if he even knew that they were claiming... I can just picture him being in London, and the announcer comes out, and now the emperor of the Iroquois nations, and he comes out, everybody's cheering extra loud. He's like, why are they cheering so loud for me? Maybe he was the best looking of the bunch, <laughs> and so they, uh, they titled him that. Uh, there was also a fifth guy that they found, but unfortunately we have no information about him. The, we do have a little information on him, and that's that he died about halfway across the ocean towards England. So we're, we're sorry, Mr. Fifth King, that you are lost forever to history, but it was fun while it lasted. So they pull into London, and Peter Schuyler has sent word ahead that these guys are coming. Uh, the Queen never invited them, and so a lot of things could go wrong here, Caleb. What if everybody realizes that this is a fraud sham that's going on? What if they realize these aren't really kings? What if the Queen refuses to meet with them because they're beneath her? What if people are really suspicious about them? And nothing happens, and he gets disgraced for being proved. Yeah, what if they get there and they try to assassinate the queen or something? You know, you never know what, what, what they could do. But when they get there, they are a hit. They become instant celebrities. They start meeting with prominent figures in the government, and all of them are just totally taken aback. Uh, we talked about how the Iroquois are known for their gravitas and their oratory. And so they look at the way that they carry themselves and they just look like they are full of authority, even though they're not, because that was just how Iroquois people in general carried themselves. People are totally convinced that these are regal royalty. Think about colonial Europe at the time. 
if there's anybody with station, you don't make eye contact with them. You keep your head down. And in the New World, in the Americas, all the Native Americans, they all speak to each other as equals. Uh, they don't think of anybody being greater and can order them around. So when they get there, they have this almost aurora about them. And they're taller than everybody else. And so they walk around and people are just like, oh. Those are, those are the kings. And word just spreads through London like wildfire. And they become celebrities. They're the Fab Four. Now, there really wasn't much opportunity to ever see a Native American Indian at the time. We do know that Squanto went to Europe uh, over 100 years earlier. And I'm sure there were people here and there, but they were just, just regular folk. There were never kings. And not only that, I mean, this is the Iroquois. People in, in England may not be able to find New York on a map. But they've heard of the Iroquois mm-hmm. based on all the wars that are going on. And so they know that the Iroquois are the most powerful nation state in North America. And also there's been all sorts of fan fiction novels that have been being written for the past hundred years. Casual reading, adventure stories of the new world, and they, they have yeah. fictional characters. So these kings are really sparking the interest of the entire population. And so they're meeting with, they meet with the the Bishop of London, they meet with the Lord of the Admiralty, they're meeting with other bigwigs, and everybody wants them to show up to their cafe, wants them to come to uh, their show. In fact, there's one performance, Caleb, of Macbeth, and they get the playbill up, and I actually found it, which is great. I'm going to post it on our Facebook page and on our website. And it says, come see the four uh, American kings, also see Macbeth tonight. It's like, you know, it had a, a crude picture of what you would think a king looks like. I mean, it, it looks like they're royal kings. Yeah, they're, I think they're even wearing yeah, they're wearing crowns. crowns and... and so uh, the place gets packed out. Only three of the kings end up making it to the performance. Uh, it's a dark lit room and people are climbing over each other trying to get a good view of uh, the kings. Yeah, the kings are sat right up front and the, the, the play starts and all the actors come out and start acting. And uh, everybody's making so much commotion in there. Because they want to see the kings, and they actually start chanting to the to the actors, get off the stage, we want to see the kings. <laughs> so they try to calm everybody down, but you know the actors don't want to be humiliated, so they eventually work their way to... Um, yeah, they grab uh, chairs, put chairs up on the stage, and they ask the guests of honor to please sit on stage, and then they can do the performance with them sitting there. And then they could only see the backs of the heads of the kings... So they all start cheering again. We can't see their faces. Turn them around. So they end up turning them all facing the crowd while the play is going on. And you would think, what, what's the big deal? Uh, you know, they're just people with a little darker skin. What's, what's the allure? Um, the interesting thing is also uh, several of them had tattoos on their faces. And they wore these regal robes and these skins and these moccasins. And so it just seemed like they were literally from a, from a fairy tale. Other people not to be outdone, Caleb, got on the bandwagon, and they also started advertising that uh, the kings were coming to visit their play. Yeah, uh, the thing is, they tended to do this even if the kings were not coming, or were even invited, or even in the country at the time. Yeah, uh, someone, uh, our historian friend, told us that they actually were still advertising a year after the kings had already left. Come see the four Indian kings. Down at Cubs Pub tonight, dollar drafts. <laughs> Just trying to get people into our, hey, we thought we thought the Kings were going to be here. Oh, yeah, um, you just missed them. So, uh, or, uh, yeah, they, they got sick. They, they can't come tonight. But here, why don't you order a pint? 
other entrepreneurs start doing engravings. That's like where they carve blocks and they do like, it's like a crude Xerox machine. You carve the brick of wood and then you dip it in ink and do a little picture. And so they started doing these crude things and they were selling little pictures and lockets and tokens and all kinds of merchandise that everybody was lapping up because everybody in London was a fan. And as Caleb mentioned, people were writing love stories about kings. So after going on their London tour, visiting the Tower of London and the cathedrals and even giving alms to the poor at insane asylums, they finally get their much-anticipated meeting with Queen Anne. This meeting here goes to show you that they weren't just a bunch of bums. They might not have been sachems, but... They did have their own agenda. They weren't there just for themselves to go on a tour. They really had things that they needed to tell the queen. And how many people get an audience with the queen of uh, Queen of Britain? Yeah, they probably didn't realize how rare of a thing it was, but Hendrick steps up. And this may go to, to show that maybe he really was a sachem because he really does kind of seem like the default leader of this group of four kings. Not the emperor of the Six Nations. Not the emperor. <laughs> Hendrick steps up, and here's a quote from Hendrick. Great Queen, we have undertaken a long and tenuous voyage, which none of our predecessors could have ever prevailed upon the undertaking. The Mohawks have been a strong wall of security for the English against the French in the North America, even to the loss of our best men. All that stuff is true. The Mohawks have sacrificed a lot to keep the English safe. Then he continues on and he basically tells the Queen that the Mohawks and the Iroquois are getting sick doing all the battling against the French at the cost of their families to keep the English safe, and the English never give them any support. It's also interesting that, like, do you talk to a queen like that? No, common person wouldn't. But that's also kind of the brilliance of Schuyler here, elevating them to kings, because only a king could talk to a queen like that. No other person in England would dare speak to yeah, the even monarch. A, even like, an ambassador would say, would, you know... Tone it down. Or if he had a, a completely private meeting, then he might give a letter from the king that says that. He wouldn't actually say it himself. So, yeah, it, it's very... Uh, he's telling the truth, uh, which is great. But, yeah, it would really make you think that he's really got some high standing here. And Hendrick also brings up some points on free hunting and trade with the queen because things are starting to get really ridiculous back in North America with trying to compete and always having them try to get the lowest prices and them walking 300 miles and the English not giving them a fair price and telling them where they can't hunt. And uh, at the end of it all, he presents to her four wampum belts. Yeah, and so you're seeing right there the, the cultural significance because that's what people did when they went on diplomatic missions is they would give the wampum belts for peace, uh, especially when they're trying to ratify a treaty. And this does go to show that perhaps they really were representing at least the Mohawk, if not the entire Iroquois nation, but the women made the wampum belts. So somebody must have made these and sent them there for the queen. And they don't take a short amount of time to make. Do you know if the wampum belts still exist? I looked and I could not find it. It makes me curious, though, because in one of the portraits of them, they're holding a wampum belt and it's the one with the little crosses in it running down. Uh -huh. And so I'm wondering if that's one of the belts that they gave her. No way for me to know for sure, but... Well, it'd be, we might be able to find out if the paintings were taken before or after their meeting. Because if the paintings were done before, then they would still have them on their persons. But 
It'd, it'd be a shame if those were lost somewhere over the hundreds of years. I can see the queen. What are these? Yeah. Uh, they're wampum, my queen. Oh, great. Okay, uh, put it with the other stuff, yeah. and it gets Not realizing how many hundreds of hours it took to make them, <laughs> or the symbology behind them. Mm-hmm. So they kind of push things further. Not only do they talk about their grievances with the English, but they say that we would be happy to assist you in a war against the French. But we want to be sure that the English are going to have our backs and that we're doing this together as partners. We don't want to be left out to dry like we have in the past. And that's the sticking point. And a lot of things are going on in the background right now. In this year, things politically are not going well for the war. And actually, right during this time is when a new political party comes into power. It's anti-war faction in government. And so the war is kind of winding down and England is actually going to be stepping out of the war at this time. Pretty much the Queen doesn't want to commit forces to Canada at this time. That's correct. But they also have another request, and this might be one that she's a little more willing to help them with. They bring up how the French are converting their brothers and sisters into Catholicism and taking them to New France. Yeah, that evil satanic Catholicism versus the pure and righteous Protestantism of the Church of England. And they basically do one of the... If only we had our own missionaries and our own church, uh, perhaps we could still have Christianity without losing all of our people to the French. And just like how Andrew said, there's this anti-war faction going on in England at the time. So this is going to give the queen her perfect photo op where she can do something good for them without committing to more soldiers and guns and gunpowder for war. And the Mohawks get what they want. And so what the queen ends up commissioning is for a couple chapels to be built and for two missionaries to be sent uh, to go work among the Mohawk. And on top of that, she ends up giving them other gifts. She basically gives them all they'll need to to outfit the church, like a a pure sterling silver communion set, a beautiful pipe organ, which were very rare and very expensive at the time. And she gives the money to have a chapel built. And so there was a chapel built at the site called Fort Hunter, and it was called Queen Anne's Chapel. Uh, another little comical story, while the kings are out with Queen Anne in her garden, uh, they take note of some of the animals she has around. That's right. The queen has some, I don't know if we call them pet deer, but you know they're somewhat domesticated deer that just walk around in her garden that you know, she had bought. And uh, one of the kings has an idea that he can show how strong and how fast and how brave of warriors they are. And he he proposes to the queen, why don't you let me catch that deer with my bare hands so I can show you how strong an Iroquois warrior is? (laughs) (laughs) The queen's just standing there. I can see her waiting for the interpretation to come through and the look on her face be like, did you translate that right? Yeah, the translator. He wants to catch that deer for you. (laughs) So she politely declines his offer. All in all, it works out quite well. I think everybody except for Peter Schuyler, who wanted to have an invasion force to conquer Canada and be a great military leader. But the Mohawk get what they want. The Queen, you know, you can judge people's motives, but the Queen probably genuinely did want to see people get in a closer relationship with uh, her faith. And these kings, it seemed like, generally wanted them to come too. So who are we to judge their motives completely? The queen gives them uh, quite a nice parting gift. She commissions that they be given 200 pounds sterling uh, to be used to buy gifts and presents to take back home. I did the calculations, Caleb. 200 pounds sterling in modern currency is about $32,100. 
So not an insignificant sum. And so they get hatchets, knives, guns, gunpowder, lead for making uh, musket balls. They get a, a complete custom wardrobe made. They get hats. They get a personal sword. They get uh, a personal gun. Yeah, a, a completely, mo- you know, most state-of-the-art gun at the time. They get um, tons of uh, rolls of cloth to bring back. And so you might be thinking, wow, those guys are going to be really rich when they get back. But that wasn't the Iroquoian way. You didn't go and accumulate wealth for yourself. You could accumulate esteem. And so now these guys get to come back and be Santa Claus to their local communities and give this stuff out. And so, you know, maybe these guys weren't all high-ranking sachems when they went, but I have a feeling that their standing probably increased a little bit when they got home. So what happens to these guys after this, Caleb? Well, the majority of them just kind of sadly fade into obscurity. Yeah, we, we think that uh, Brant may have passed away shortly after he returned back. Uh, the, the other two kind of fade away. We only really hear about Heinrich again. And he's going to be influential in some diplomatic missions between the English and uh, the Mohawk in the future. There's actually even some records that he makes a second journey back to England, uh, I think about 30 years later. Hmm. Which is really interesting. It's, it really is amazing. There's dozens of books written about these guys. And we've also posted on our Facebook page and on our website the portraits that the Queen had commissioned for these four gentlemen to be done shortly before they returned. And the detail in them is amazing, Caleb. You can see the three of them are wearing the moccasins tied up, and they've, they've got these flowing cloth robes. And several of them, if you look at the detail, have tattoos on them. On top of that, they also painted their clan animal in the picture with them. So one of them will have a wolf, one will have a turtle. I wondered why that one. was in there. That makes sense now, because I'm like, the guy's got a random turtle standing next to him. What's up with that? Me not making the connection. And then I... I thought, and there's a couple dogs. What's up with these dogs? They're wolves. That makes sense now. Really go in and Google these images and zoom in close. There's also stuff going on in the background. Did you notice that? Yeah. There's one picture of another guy beating a, uh, an enemy with a, a war club. I think there's another with a couple people hunting. I think the originals are here in America somewhere, aren't they? Um, they kind of tour around. The Queen Elizabeth II in the 70s came to Canada um, for one of the Canadians' anniversaries, and they brought the paintings back from London and gave them to a museum in Canada. And I know that they've toured around North America, and they have come to American cities. So at the current moment, I'm not sure where they're at, but I believe their home is in a museum in Canada. So we wanted to give a big thank you to Michael Galvin over at the Ganondagan State Historic Site, the curator and head researcher there. He gave us Twice as much information as we previously had. Yeah, like we said, we already had this episode done and we're ready to post it. And then after speaking to him, we realized there was a lot more information that we could do a much better job. So thank you very much. After meeting with him, we walked in and it had the four portraits sitting right over his desk. And we're like, hey, that's the four kings. And he's like, yeah. And he just starts handing us books and books and books about them and uh, giving us some other fun anecdotes. So thank you very much. We're kind of going to be switching gears in our next episodes, Caleb. We're going to be moving away from New York, and we're going to be going south. Yeah, and uh, you might be thinking, why the heck are we going to be talking about the Carolinas when the five nations live up in New York? And that's because we're finally, 20-something episodes in, going to add the sixth member of the Iroquois Nation, the Tuscarora. So next episode is probably going to be an introduction, how the Tuscarora people, their ancestors, came from the Northeast and immigrated down and ended up in Carolina. And we'll probably talk about relations between them 
and how their culture was very similar to the Iroquois up in New York and how their relations of conflict happened with the English and other European powers. And this is going to be really fun because there's going to be a lot of new characters, all different Indian tribes that you've never heard of. And we're even going to get some Germans and Swiss involved. And we're going to be like, how the heck do they end up here? And they're going to screw everything up. Spoilers, there's going to be a war and it's going to be bad for both sides. So we're probably going to be looking at several episodes focusing solely on the Tuscarora. So if any of you out there are uh, lovers of the Tuscarora Nation, we hope that we can do you justice when we start talking about them next time. Check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. You can listen to episodes, leave comments, contact us. Yep, you can also feel free to communicate with us on Facebook, or we're now on Twitter too. So if that's your favorite mode of doing social media, please check that out as well. But most importantly, you must become members of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. And how can they do that, Andrew? Well, the best way to do that is to go on iTunes, if you've not done so already. And we understand it might be a pain. But the joy that you will bring to these two podcasters' lives is immeasurable. And so leave a review, hopefully a positive one, if we've done a good job. And after doing so, we'll take your screen name and we'll put it on our website as an honorary adopted member of our Wild Sweet Potato Clan. And by doing so, that helps us stay bumped in the ratings. And it also gives us a little feedback and a little encouragement because Andrew and I do put a lot of time into this. We both have families and it, it does help encourage us to keep going, hearing that people care about the show and people are listening. So thank you so much, everyone. We hope that you have a great week, and we will see you again in Carolina. Bye, everybody.